Take your Bibles, turn to Hosea 1. Hosea 1. We've got some tough sledding here today uh, when it comes to this passage. Actually, this whole book is a tough one to wade through. The psalmist says that a man is a fool who denies the existence of God. Now, fool is a moral term. A person does not ultimately deny God's existence because of evidence or lack of. But it's because the scripture says they willfully do not want there to be a God. Of course, what we want doesn't dictate reality. Uh, humans want autonomy. We don't want a God who will judge, who will hold us accountable. Yet, being an atheist, funny enough, does not stop one from being angry with God. The Journal of Personality and Social Psychology noted that people get angry at God all the time. Julie Exline, Case Western Reserve University psychologist, said, people unaffiliated with organized religion, atheists, and agnostics are more angry at God than believers. I find it odd that on one, time, on one hand you are denying God's existence and on the other hand you are ticked at God. I mean, this life is uh, confronting us with pesky reminders of God's existence, is it not? Atheists and many of those who fancy themselves as religionists, progressive religionists, do not like the kind of God that is represented in the Bible. And the foolishness of humankind extends to those who fashion a God by cherry-picking Scripture and even denying or refusing to look at others. Because they want a God that they can conceptualize to their own liking and that they can control. The fact is, not many of us are comfortable with a God who judges sin. We don't want a God who judges. People want a God who hugs, who sends valentines to people. And certainly not one who's holy and who judges sin. Jonathan Edwards wrote in 1736, by the way, one of the men responsible for one of the great awakenings, an Ivy League president of a college, if you weren't aware, the Ivy League schools were originally seminaries, training pastors. Would you say they have drifted a tad from their original vision? Jonathan Edwards wrote this in 1736. They have an inbred distaste and disrelish of God's perfections. God is not such a sort of being as they would have. Though they are ignorant of God, yet from what they hear of him and from what is manifest by the light of nature of God, they do not like him. By his being endowed with such attributes as he is, they have an aversion to him. They hear God as an infinitely holy, pure, and righteous being, and they do not like him upon this account. They have no relish of such kind of qualifications. They take no delight in contemplating them. It would be a mere task, a bondage to a natural man, to be obliged to see himself to contemplate these attributes of God. They see no manner of beauty or loveliness, nor uh, taste any sweetness 
in them. And I think such is the case for many people in the book of Hosea. And I suspect that many who call themselves Christians definitely do not like the message of this book. Some will just choose to ignore it all together. Chapter 1, after announcing his wife as a serial adulterer, introduces us to Hosea's children. And each are given a name that kind of expresses this conundrum about the nature of God. And Hosea presents it in such a stark reality, it initially just like, what? How can he say this? And yet, I think, in one way, is a beautiful picture of things to come in Jesus Christ. The fact is that God cannot be contained by man. God cannot be fully understood by our finite rationality. So let's take a look at this passage. Hosea 1, 4, uh, uh, 3 through 11. And then let's all stand, okay? So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblain, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sands of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. More is devoted to the three children of Hosea in chapter 1 
than Hosea's marriage to Gomer. This is a straightforward condemnation upon the northern kingdom of Israel. Jezreel is a location in the northern kingdom. Jezreel was synonymous with one of the bloodiest periods in the history of Israel, a period abhorrent to God. In fact, when you said Jezreel, people associated slaughter, violence, murder, shedding of blood. It was at Jezreel that King Jehu of Israel ruled from 841 to 814 B.C., had massacred the enemies of Israel, including King Ahab and Queen Jezebel of Israel, King Jehoram of Israel, and many prophets of Baal as commanded in 2 Kings 9. The problem is, is that Jehu didn't stop there. He also killed King Ahaziah of Judah and 42 of his relatives. Jehu went beyond what he was instructed to do. Also, Jehu was given this command because of the idol worship of Israel, this wanton spiritual adultery of the Israelites. And then we read of Jehu in 2 Kings 10 this. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made, uh, which he made Israel to sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you've done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab, according to all that was in his heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu will was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. This was a measured response of God. Because Jehu was obedient in one part, he would remain king, at least for a short while. But because he went overboard in the killing of the descendants, his own descendants would suffer. In fact, Jehu was, was no more faithful to the law of God than the victims that he killed. He also came under God's judgment and after reigning for 28 years, died. Jeroboam II, the king during Hosea's ministry at this writing, was a direct descendant of Jehu. Hence, the house of Jehu was still reigning in the land of Israel. And Jeroboam and his people, the people of Israel, never repented after this prophecy was given. Breaking the bow, breaking these instruments that are mentioned here, refers to the destruction of the nation's military might. It would be like saying, we got rid of all their tanks, all their ammo, all their guns, all their jet planes we destroyed. So it, it was a strike to their military heart. 
the military might of Israel would come to an end. And Israel is given what she wants, to live independent from God. Think of that. People that were thought of as the people of God want to live independent of God. Does that not describe the state of many Christians today? They did not value God's love or laws. Therefore, she will get what she's done in word and action, separation from God. And Israel will be called not loved. God told Hosea that the demise of Jehu's dynasty was to be accompanied by the downfall of the northern kingdom. And this prophecy was fulfilled later with the king Tiglath-Pileser. He was a prominent king of Assyria. Swept across the entire territory. Defeated the northern kingdom. Set up a, a puppet king from Assyria over the land. And God kept his word. And he punished Israel for their sin. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. You know, if you did a Google search, on the worst names ever given to human beings, you'll find some pretty funny stuff. Samsung, that was one. Saad Man. Hitler Mussolini, that was one. And then there are a host of others that are not appropriate for a sermon. No mercy for a girl would have to rank as one of the least favorite names. And that is the point. It can also be translated, not loved. For a culture as child-centered as Israel was, it's difficult to imagine a name that is more scandalous than not loved. I mean, whenever her name was spoken, it invited the question, why in the world would anyone call his daughter that? How is it possible that Hosea, speaking for God, could in the same breath say, I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, and then I will completely forgive them. Frankly, it is jolting to assert God's terrible wrath and without transition state something about his absolute love. And this seeming inconsistency only makes sense when you realize it comes from a broken heart. It's, it's the spouse who's been cheated on, who says, I hate you, and the next day saying, I gave my all, and I love you. Well, I thought you just said you hated me. And a spouse who's been cheated on 
can understand this passage because it typifies a committed spouse who has experienced abandonment, adultery, and willful rejection. And then the corresponding consequences. This is not the language of the Lord, you know, having some kind of discipline on Israel, like he's going to spank Israel or something. What Israel faced was prolonged siege, massive starvation, slaughter, annihilation of the culture. And those who know little of human sin and the holiness of God might see this treatment as unfair. Exodus 34, 7 says that God will not leave the guilty unpunished. I mean, God, who is sovereign, creator of all, has the right to do what he wants with the clay. I mean, when every person deserves death and punishment, every person, including you and me, the greater question is this. Why does God allow any of us to live? I mean, don't we all, at one point or another, assume our innocence? That's the natural man. And if it's not complete innocence, it's at least a relative innocence compared to, you know, I don't do that stuff over there like that guy. We assume our innocence. We assume a judgment in our favor in our natural selves. We assume that we have the knowledge the wherewithal to assert fairness for the rest of the human race, and God, you don't fit it, so out with you. At least out with the Old Testament. Just doesn't fit my finite brain. Such thinking is the clay dictating treatment to the potter. God says he will no longer recognize the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom will not be restored from exile as a separate entity. It will not inherit the land apart from Judah. God will forgive individuals who repent of their sins, but will not reestablish them as a separate kingdom and as a country. He will divorce them for their adultery. Judah, the southern kingdom, now we'll read about them coming under judgment later, but Judah, the southern kingdom, in contrast with Israel, would experience the Lord's love in the form of deliverance from the Assyrians. The deliverance would be, wouldn't be accomplished by military might, symbolized by the bow and the sword and the horses and the horsemen. But they'll be delivered by direct Intervention from God. Okay? And this promise was fulfilled in 701 BC when God supernaturally annihilated 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army in one night, thereby ending the campaign against Judah. How was that done? Second Kings 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. 
by the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when God arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. But in these verses, we see this Old Testament expression of judgment and the mercy of God in one package. I will divorce this wicked people of the northern kingdom, and I will save Judah. And let me suggest that this seemingly incongruous, these virtues of God, I believe, are brought together 700 years later in Jesus Christ. And perhaps that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the gospel is folly to the Gentiles. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. Naturally, I just don't get it, how God can do these things. But it's in Christ we find the, the final answer to the judgment of sin and the grace of God put together in one package in the perfect Son of God. How can something so horrible like a crucifixion be a benchmark for grace? How can God put judgment upon his only son? And also that be the vehicle for reconciliation. Romans 5.9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. Listen, when you read this, if your mind is spinning, I get it. And I know you're probably hoping that I, I could say something that could put it all together in a logical fashion and just kind of ease up on the tension a little. But I think if I did that, I would do an injustice to what is being said. I would do an injustice to the real problem. Israel has prided itself in being the people of God. And there could not have been a more jolting name to now say, you are not my people. They prided themselves because they were born into it. They just thought they were automatically inserted. I can live any way I want and call myself one of God's people. Is this not the way many Christians live today? My parents were Christians. I grew up in a Christian home. I may have even gone to a Christian college. I'm good. God's going to save me. I'll do what I want. I'll sleep with whoever I want. Doesn't matter what sex they are. I'll do whatever I want with my money. And we spit in the face of God. It's exactly what Israel was doing. And what God is saying was like a stab to Israel's heart. To the slumber of their self-satisfaction. It was a stunning blow. 
Let us not think that God's judgment is just for yesteryear. I mean, how can people who call themselves Christians be so flippant with God when we fail to elevate our homes as outposts of the truth, fail to teach our children about God? How can we continue to deny God our lives, devotion, our time, and yet be so dedicated to the idol of material pursuits? The Lord, I think, gives us a a New Testament version of some of this tension of justice as we read Revelation 2 and 3. Might I remind you, that's the New Testament, God judging. He says this word to the churches, Revelation 2, 21 through 23. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. I will strike down her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Sometimes I think the best thing to do when you read passages like this is not to even comment on it, but just let it set in our hearts and our heads. Because somehow even the explanation falls short of the starkness of the words that are given. And we need to meditate on this. And again in Hosea, we read of judgment and grace. On one hand, we need to know of the Abrahamic promise. It's still intact. God will see that his people remain and increase. But not all who are born in Israel are part of that promise. They must receive God's blessing by faith and not birth. Paul said in Romans, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. Most of the people in Hosea's day would experience the judgment of God. All of them would if it were not for God's covenant to Abraham be lost. There remained a remnant. Individual leaders surrounded by a disbelieving country. Condemned. And then you have a ray of light. We read this. That the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it has said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Despite the the, um, demise of the northern kingdom, the Israelites will become like the sand of the sea in fulfillment of the Lord's irreversible promise to Abraham 
which in Genesis 22 says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Remember that the Abrahamic covenant was not with two parties, you know, that were obligated to keep that covenant. God, on the other hand, on the Mosaic covenant, two parties. God would bless Israel if they obeyed, and God would give them consequences if they disobeyed. The Abrahamic covenant was a promise made by God alone to his people. And here, in the same passage of Hosea, Israel heard the words, not my people, and then you shall be called sons of the living God. It's as if the jilted lover is face to face with an irrevocable covenant in Abraham and the judgment of the Mosaic law. The seeming incongruity of God judging and loving is seen in the birth of precious children to a loving father being given distasteful names. And this incompatibility can only ultimately be solved in the perfect Son of God. Taking upon himself the sin of the world and being offered up as a spotless sacrifice. The judgment is very real. and God's holy character does not change today. You don't think he's going to deal with the foolishness of the world that rejects God and his goodness expressed by him and from his moral character? Judgment will come. And then you have the incomprehensible grace of God. It's also true at the same time. And whatever sense a, a finite human being can make of it, I think is only found in Jesus Christ. It's where it comes together. Children of the living God is a play on comparison of God's remnant and the idolatry of Israel toward dead wood. The two kingdoms this divided this people of Israel and Judah would only see unity as Christ comes to reign in his second coming and he sets up his kingdom. Christ is the one head. God is the life giver and he's the source of the united kingdom. And that day of Jezreel will reverse the shame and the defeat that Israel experienced there at the hands of the Assyrians. Enemies will rise against Christ but will finally be defeated with God's supernatural strength at Christ's second coming. You know, Israel always understood that there'd be a coming king. Even in Acts 17.7, we read some 700 years later after this was written that the followers of Christ spoke of the King Jesus. And another noteworthy passage is in 1 Peter 2.10. With the hindsight of several centuries since Hosea, and in the midst of the dispersion of Jews scattered across the various nations, we read of the dichotomy of judgment and grace with God's people. Listen to this. Once you were not a people, 
But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know, these are lofty thoughts. And I suppose it's a lot harder to grasp than simple injunctions in the Bible. Do not steal whatever it is. Be thankful. It's easy to understand. And we think something like this is too theological and not very practical. Do not make that mistake. For this becomes a foundational truth of what we think about ourselves, what we think about God, and it sets our attitude, our perspectives in the right place. And if it does anything, it helps us appreciate more and more the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.